0: We're in Matthew chapter eight. We're gonna look at verses one through 17. You'd like to open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. We like you to use your electronics. We just ask that you would mute them uh, so that I don't have to be forced to make fun of you when I hear them. It's, it's a rule here at Calvary. Matthew 8, verses 1 through 17. The topic Jesus heals multitudes, including Peter's mother in law, of her fever after returning from the synagogue on the Sabbath. The title of our message Saturday Night Fever. Let's have... All right, that's a keeper then, right? Father, thank you for our morning. What a joy to open our hearts and mouths to praise you, to be led into your presence, Lord, in that way. I pray now, Lord, as we go through your word, as we listen to it intently with the hearing that the Spirit gives, we would be refreshed and encouraged and blessed in every way that you desire to touch us today. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and everyone said amen. Amen. You've probably been involved in an unofficial caption contest. Someone you follow on social media posts a picture and then asks you to suggest a certain caption for it. Guns and Ammo Magazine has a weekly caption contest. You didn't know I read Guns and Ammo, did you? (laughs) I wanna connect with my audience. I need to recover here, just a minute, okay. (laughs) A recent photo, now I was gonna show you the photo, but I'll just describe it to you, you'll get it. A recent photo showed a house cat sighting a rifle while lying on the ground. Next to the barrel were were several dead rabbits. (laughs) Okay, you got it? Cat, sighting a rifle, dead rabbits. The winning caption was Let's see now. If I'm reading the wind right, I just need to hold it a hair to the left. Get it? Yes. Our verses in Matthew present a series of snapshots of healings Jesus performed. Looking at them, we could ask as a caption contest, what was Jesus thinking when he was being used by God the Father to heal? Well, Isaiah wins that contest. His Old Testament prophecy is quoted in verse 17 where we read this, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore Our sicknesses. Every person Jesus healed, every time you could say of him, He took Himself our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now, of course, Jesus didn't actually assume the infirmities and sicknesses that He healed. When He healed Peter's mother in law of her fever, for example, He didn't become feverish. Isaiah was talking about what Jesus would do on the cross, it was there that He would bear our sin. And because sin is the root cause of all infirmities and sicknesses, it can be said that he bore those too while he was on the cross. I think it is therefore accurate to suggest that Jesus anticipated going to the cross every time he healed someone. The cross was no easy mission. We recall Jesus sweating as it were great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane under the stress of the cross. Realizing the stress our Lord was anticipating ought to give us cause to appreciate every healing in a fresh new light. I'll therefore organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus anticipated going to the cross for you with each healing. And number two, you appreciate Jesus going to the cross for you with each healing. Let's take a look. We're going to start in verse 17 with what Jesus anticipated. Now, Matthew's gospel is arranged topically, not chronologically. Scholars point out, too, that he's a competent editor of material. For example, his accounts of Jesus' miracles are about 50% shorter than the same accounts of the same miracles in the gospel of Mark. In these next two chapters, he'll present nine miracles in three groupings of three. And in between the groups of three miracles, he inserts a section on discipleship. And so that's kind of his plan for the next two chapters uh, in order to teach us about Jesus and being his followers. Now, I want to start talking about this first group of three miracles of healing by looking at Isaiah's caption in verse 17, because that's what Matthew says they are all about. And so again, we've read it, but let me read it again. Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The words are a portion of Isaiah 53, verse 4, which are a portion of the famous chapter which describes to Israel her Messiah as God's suffering servant. Scholars suggest that Matthew was reminding his readers of that entire chapter by using those few words. It was his way of saying When you see Jesus healing, go back and read Isaiah and you'll see that he is the suffering servant prophesied so many years ago. And it's true the Jews used a shorthand like this. You realize that the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, wasn't broken up into chapters and verses the way we have it today. That is not part of the inspiration of God. That is something we've done uh, for our own benefit. And so if you were a Jew and you wanted to direct someone to an area of scripture, you couldn't just say Isaiah 53 verse 4. You would have to quote a portion of that. Jesus does this on the cross, you remember. When he's on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that is the first line of Psalm 22, directing the Jews' attention to that psalm, which hundreds of years earlier, predicted the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah is quoting a portion of a verse and really telling the Jews, this is all about Isaiah chapter 53 and the suffering servant that you read about there. Now, we're not in any dilemma. The Jews have arguments still about who this suffering servant is. They want to say it is their nation that is the nation of Israel, but the New Testament several times tells us directly that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is none other than Jesus Christ. Let me briefly summarize how Jesus was presented in Isaiah over 700 years before he was born. He would be counted as nothing because of his lowly background, rejected because of his message, and acquainted with grief because of his earthly mission. That's Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. While Jesus was bearing the wrath of God for the sins of every human being, many onlookers would assume he was dying for his own crimes. That's verses 4 through 6. Although sinless, Jesus would make no effort to defend himself as he was led to die as our substitute, verses 7 and 8. And then having paid in full the penalty for our sins, God would raise him from the dead and show him that his mission had been accomplished, verses 11 and 12. Jesus defeated sin on the cross through his death and subsequent resurrection. He also defeated every result of sin, such as infirmities and sicknesses. Now, there's a sense in which all infirmities and all sicknesses and all suffering of any kind are a result of sin. There would be no such things in our world if Adam and Eve had not sinned in the garden. Now, allow me to very briefly address a false teaching that arises from Isaiah 53. There are those who maintain that physical healing is guaranteed us now because of what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, We would call it healing on demand. Jesus, you died for our infirmities and sicknesses. By your stripes, we are healed. And so therefore, I wanna be healed right now. And they tell you if you're not healed, that you don't have the faith to receive what Jesus has done for you. Well, let me give you one reason, uh, the only reason you know why that is not true. And it is because people still die. If that were true, if healing was ours in the atonement, then no one would ever die who believed in Jesus Christ. Now, sadly, I have heard some of these faith teachers go so far as to say you don't need to die and that you can actually dismiss your own spirit to heaven and then they die. Uh, which uh, I guess they dismiss their spirit into heaven, Uh, happens to coincide with a disease that they say they don't have, Uh, but it's just crazy. And so there there is the potential for healing today. We still believe Jesus heals, but it's not a guarantee. There's no healing on demand. Jesus went to the cross, he defeated sin so that all men everywhere can be saved. His work was finished, but its results have not been completed. The whole of creation, Paul the Apostle tells us, still groans waiting for the final redemption that Jesus has accomplished. At his second coming in the millennial kingdom on earth, Jesus will eradicate sicknesses and infirmities. Then in what we call eternity, we who are saved will finally in our glorified bodies uh, be made new and there will be no more sin or sickness or suffering or tears or any such thing. And so we're kind of in that progressive unfolding of the drama of redemption. Jesus has won the victory. He's defeated sin and death, but he hasn't quite yet claimed the final prize. Now, we believe, as I just said, God can and does heal, and we pray for healings. But in this current church age, infirmities and sicknesses have not been totally eradicated. The folks that are healed in these verses are healed in the light of the cross. The physical healings represent the spiritual healing available by grace through faith at the cross. When Jesus healed people and Jews in their minds were directed to Isaiah 53, they saw their savior dying for their sins. Every single healing depended upon Jesus' suffering and dying on the cross, He could not help but anticipate what was shortly coming. Maybe it's just me, but that puts healing in a whole new light. Or at least it reminds me that Jesus' life and ministry was always about the cross upon which he would die for me. Even when Jesus was born, there in the manger, uh, or actually later on in his house when the three wise men came with their gifts, one of the gifts was to anoint him for his burial. He was born to die, and every moment of his life was in the shadow of the cross. When Jesus told his disciples, which includes you and I, to take up their crosses daily, it was something he had done every moment of his life. Every moment Jesus lived, he lived in the shadow of the cross. And we're thankful that he did, because in the book of Hebrews said that he endured the shame. And he did it for, it says, the joy that was set before him. And what was that joy? It was that he would provide salvation for every man, woman, and child so that you and I could be saved. Now, the rest of these verses, they're about our appreciating Jesus going to the cross for us with each healing. I'm not sure what the disciples and the multitudes following Jesus thought would happen after he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. If you were reading this for the first time, You didn't know really that much about Jesus and you were reading this and you read the Sermon on the Mount, which even non-believing secular people say is one of the greatest uh, manifestos ever given, uh, one of the most magnificent speeches ever made. And you read that and you thought, man, this is, Jesus is going to come down and he's going to establish this kingdom and we're going to live by the golden rule and everything's going to be Fantastic. I do not believe that you would think that the first thing recorded after that was that Jesus would be assaulted by a leper demanding to be healed. But that's exactly what happened. It says in verse one, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. You get the scene. It's, it's a scene of victory and excitement. The multitudes had just said, no one's ever spoken like this. So this guy is blowing our mind. And behold, a leper came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. Then immediately his leprosy was cleansed. What just happened? That's mind-blowing. Leprosy in the Bible is a generic term. It could be applied to a variety of skin disorders, anything from psoriasis to full-blown leprosy. I see this as a full-blown leprosy here. It's also in the Gospel of Mark that way. Its symptoms ranged from white patches on the skin to running sores to the loss of digits on the fingers and toes. I I don't want to gross you out, but I see this guy kneeling before Jesus and losing some stuff as he goes down. I mean, this, this guy is in an advanced state of leprosy. For the Hebrew, it was a dreaded disease, not only for its physical effects. I mean, who would want to be a leper? but because it rendered its victims ceremonially unclean. Anyone, uh, a leper was unfit to worship God. You could not participate in any of the Jewish rituals or rites. And anyone who came in contact with a leper was considered unclean. Lepers were, uh, lepers, excuse me, were therefore isolated from the rest of the community. It was a very terrible situation. The leper was violating the law by approaching Jesus. Or was he? He was violating the letter of the ceremonial law, but he was appealing to a higher spiritual law, the law of love. And so the law said you can't come near anybody, let alone Jesus. But he understood the higher law that God loved him and wanted to do something for him. Jesus responded in kind. When he touched the leper, he too was violating ceremonial law, but he was keeping the higher law of love. Now, the leper did not doubt the ability of Jesus to heal him. He simply asked if Jesus was willing. We would say he prayed, submitted to the will of God. It's it's his version of saying, Lord, heal me of leprosy if your will be done. Leprosy, by the way, is also understood to be a symbol in the Bible for sin, and we see Jesus more than able to cure sin, he is also willing to cure sin. First Timothy two, three and four, we read this for this is good and acceptable in the light of in the sight rather of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you believe that? The Bible says that God our Savior, Jesus Christ, desires all men everywhere to be saved. That's his willingness. We are not universalists. We know that not all men will be saved. You're saved when you trust Christ as your savior, when you receive his grace that is given to you. But that is his will, that is his desire, that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Now, I ran across something totally fascinating. It was so fascinating that I had to check it out in several sources, because I almost didn't believe it. Remember, we're in a, Isaiah 53 context a portion of Isaiah 53 verse 4 that Matthew did not directly quote reads like this it says yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted in the Latin Vulgate version of the Old Testament these words are translated we thought him to be a leper that's how it's translated we thought him our servant our savior to be a leper that's how the Jews would read that verse So here comes Jesus touching a leper which Jews were forbidden to do because it would render you ceremonial unclean but also you would contract their leprosy. And so if you were looking at Jesus that day and he reached out to touch that leper, you'd never touched a leper, you never would touch a leper and here he touches him and you're thinking he's going to become a leper The kingdom is going to be over before it even started because our king is going to be a leper. And then you would see that not leprosy came to Jesus, but healing comes to the leper. And somebody must have remembered Isaiah 53, 4 and thought, we thought him to be a leper. This is happening, unfolding right before my very eyes. Isaiah 53 is coming true right before my very eyes. I I thought he was gonna be a leper, but instead everybody's healed. This is the Messiah. Matthew 8, four. Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Uh, People give a lot of reasons why Jesus said this, but the main reason he gave was to provide a testimony to Israel's priests. There had only been two recorded cases in the Jewish scriptures of people being healed of leprosy Miriam and Naaman. Both of those were miraculous. It would have put the priests on official notice that Jesus Christ, their Messiah, was here. Now, by the way, it's instructive that God healed the leprosy of a Jew, Miriam, and a Gentile, Naaman. It anticipates the salvation of all, that God so loved the world, not just the Jews. We would also note that Jesus was not afraid to have his healings validated independently. He said, I've healed you of your leprosy. Go and show the priests, let them examine you according to the law of Moses to be sure you are fully and completely healed. Have you ever watched some of this stuff on television that passes off as miracle uh, you know, uh, healings and stuff? It's really sickening because people aren't completely healed. In a psychosomatic moment, they're able to stand without using their crutches, but they don't really need crutches to stand all the time anyway. They're not healed of leprosy. They're not healed of paralysis. It's really sad. And then if you suggest, well, why don't you go to the doctor and verify that healing? Everybody gets upset, like you're, you don't have faith. It, 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 there's, a, there's a feeling in the church among certain Christians that if you wanna validate anything or check anything out, the Holy Spirit's gonna have your number. He's he's gonna be mad at you. He's gonna be upset with you. Anything goes, just leave it alone and and just let's accept that as a healing whether or not that person was truly healed or not. Jesus says, hey, I touched you. All your leprosy is gone. You're fully healed. Now go and get that validated. Let's do that as a real witness to the nation of Israel. Verse five. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Centurions are Roman soldiers who commanded up to a 100 men. They're always mentioned in a good light in the Bible. They were a good group of guys, uh, many of whom got saved. The better translation of verse seven makes it a question. Jesus asked the centurion, what do you want me to do? The centurion answered and said, verse eight, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, this shines a spotlight on authority. We obey authority because we realize there's something or someone behind it with the power to enforce it. The centurion had a sense that all authority was delegated by God, even that of Jesus in his earthly ministry. And since what he desired was spiritual and supernatural, it did not depend on anything physical or natural. It's a great study in and of itself because this is happening in a Jewish context where everything was ritual and ceremony, where you had to go through uh, certain rituals and certain ceremonies saying certain things in order to approach God. And here comes this Gentile saying, all you need to do is is think it or say the word or whatever because you have the authority of God. It's a lesson to us to keep things in a spiritual mindset, to not be enamored of methods and techniques, but to remain dependent upon God. I don't wanna get too far into this, but um, I'll mention it. There is a a kind of a mini movement in the church at large today for Christians to return to a, a, a more... Orthodox liturgy or, or uh, more of a high church kind of a thing where they are reciting creeds and where they um, have certain formulas and where they uh, you know recite certain prayers and stuff like that. And and people seem to think that it's more spiritual. They seem, to, they seem to be elevated by it because of You know, there's that kind of thing going on in big cathedrals. I could do that if you You know, sounds like whale speak, but I could do it. I speak liturgy, but uh, anyway, um, and and I don't don't always want to be seen as the guy that, that is criticizing stuff, but this centurion would say, What are you doing? What's with the mumbo jumbo? Just heal my servant. You don't need to be doing all of that. And sometimes for fun, this is what I do for fun, I don't know what you do for fun, but when when I'm watching services like that where, where they're all like kind of written out and everything has to be read just the way it was written in Latin thousands of years ago, watch the person doing it. They are so just going through the motions. They are so just going through the motions. Uh, it, it looks like this. Centurion answered and said, "Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed." And uh, yeah, there's because there's no reality to it. And, and you're sitting, me and you are sitting there thinking, "Oh, wow, this is so uplifting. This is so orthodox. This is so early church." No, it's not. The early church, they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't recite anything, these guys. And so just be careful about that. Be more like this centurion. Just, Lord, you have all the authority in the universe. You want to heal me? You can do it. I don't need to go to a faith healer. I don't need him to put his hands a certain way or say certain words. I just need to know that you're my Lord. Verse 10. Verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You need to put on your Jewish way of thinking cap for just a moment. Gentiles, like... This centurion were considered just as unclean as lepers. The best a Gentile could hope for, the most generous idea a Jew might entertain was that Gentiles would be servants and slaves to them in the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus said Gentiles would be just as welcome as the patriarchs. This is a guess who's coming to dinner moment. Gentiles. At the same time, he says, many Israelites, ethnic Jews, would perish in torment in hell. They thought themselves sons of the kingdom by birth, but natural birth is never enough to save you. You must be born spiritually, you must be born again, and that is available to whosoever will believe in Jesus Christ. I come from a tradition growing up where I thought I was going to go to heaven because of my physical birth. That's what I was told, that's what I believed. I was part of the master race, the Italians. Uh, we have the Vatican, right? It's not in Spain, right? It's not in Portugal, it's in Rome, so we're in. As long as you got an O or an A at the end of your name and you're a little bit greasy, you're going, you know, so. Yeah, you, you're not gonna go directly to hell. Hey, I'm an Italian, I can say anything I want. Sicilian, specifically. I'm not, now I knew I wouldn't go directly to heaven because I wasn't a priest. I'd have a stopover in purgatory, but what's a few thousand years of suffering for the fun I'm having now? you know, when I'm gonna end up in heaven. And so it's a, it's a salvation by birth kind of a thing. It really, one of the things that really blew my mind when I started to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ was that my natural birth meant nothing in terms of saving me. In fact, it was working against me. It was teaching me a false hope and uh, keeping me from Christ. And so Jesus is saying, hey, a bunch of Gentiles are gonna sit with Abraham and chew the fat and some of you guys aren't gonna be there. And so this is pretty mind-blowing. Jesus didn't directly violate any law here with this Gentile, I don't think, but he did indicate those who had never been under the law could and would be saved without ever having to keep it. Each snapshot in this chapter challenges the status quo by elevating their thinking to be inclusive rather than exclusive. For example, the religion of the Pharisees and scribes was all about showing how exclusive they were. They, had, they were a small group of super spiritual people who were doing things that you as a common person could never do, and, and that was the kind of righteousness they thought was uh, acceptable to God. And Jesus comes along and he says, yeah, I'm not exclusive like that. In fact, you guys aren't going. I'm inclusive. You know who's gonna be in heaven? Lepers and Gentiles, Uh, And so we always want to be inclusive. We never want to grow exclusive. Verse 14, now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and served them. In the Gospel of Mark, we're told this healing occurred after Jesus had come from the synagogue on the Sabbath. It seems that Jesus healed her before sunset because after sunset is when all these other people came for healing and that means he again violated the letter of the law but kept its spirit because crazy as it was, Jews had come to think that to heal someone on the Sabbath was against the law. You could keep someone from dying You could do enough medically to keep them from dying, but you couldn't heal them because that was a work. The next time somebody tells you we need to keep the law, just walk away. Uh, Because that's what it comes to. Eventually, people say, well, what is the law? How do we keep it? I guess I can't heal anybody. I guess you shouldn't go to the hospital then on Friday night, between Friday night and Saturday night. Is this the ER? Yeah, but we can just stop the bleeding. What do you mean? I can't, we can't help you. Why? Because we're, we're keeping the law. I'm gonna die. No, no, we'll make sure you don't die. You might get gangrene, but you won't die tonight. It's crazy the way, and, and so um, Jesus violates the law, but he heals the mother-in-law. Now, I have to note in passing, Peter was married. You, you pick that up? That he had a mother-in-law? He did not have the gift of celibacy, nor did he take a vow of celibacy, and so I say he doesn't qualify to be the first pope. Now, I don't know if you think Peter was the first pope, but a whole bunch of people do. I used to. Uh, And he just doesn't, he he doesn't make the minimum requirement. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if there's a chart that you have to fill out, but are you married? Yes. All right, next. You know, so bear that in mind. I'm sure there's an answer for that, but it's a crazy one. Uh, Now, Jesus wasn't through. Once the sun set, a long line of people were outside the house who needed ministry. And so in verse 16, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. Some sicknesses and infirmities are attributed to demons and demonic possession in the Bible. Not all, but some. We wanna keep that distinction. Now, the question always comes up, whenever we see Jesus encountering demons and demonic possession, this is the question that always comes up, why don't we see more demon possession today? Well, first let me say, I'm okay with that. I don't know about you, but I'm in no hurry to confront demons. When I leave the house in the morning after devotions, I don't say, Lord, bring me some demons. Uh, just, just that, give me a demon-possessed person so that I can take them on. That is not part of my day at all. Now, second, and this is more importantly, don't we see an absolute explosion of occult activity in the modern age? It's everywhere, I think an argument could be made that there is far more demonic activity on the earth today than ever before. It's more subtle, it's less sinister looking, but that only makes it more dangerous. We always think of demons in terms of Halloween and strange, creepy, horrifying things. The Bible says that the devil transforms himself into an angel of light, And I think while we're asking the question, why aren't more people demon-possessed, we're surrounded by demonic activity of all kinds that is holding people captive to do the will of the devil. Let me give you a couple of examples. One of the most prominent influential psychologists of the 20th century was Carl Jung. Have you ever heard of Carl Jung, how many of you? Maybe if you haven't heard of him, it doesn't matter. He's super influential in the realm of psychology and psychoanalysis. He really is. Carl Jung, his whole process, Jungian therapy, is to contact spirit entities. He began going to seances. His whole family was involved in all of that and it became part of his therapy. Jung practiced, he he doesn't say, I want you to contact a demon. He calls it active imagination. Listen to how it's described. Jung held conversations with a spirit named Elijah who eventually changes into another figure, Philemon. Philemon teaches Jung about the nature of human consciousness. Jung begins to see how autonomous inner figures can act. It's the inner figure that seems to hold this knowledge, not Jung. Again, Jung's inner figure changes. This time it alters to take on the form of the Egyptian notion of the spirit called Ka demon alert, he was talking to a demon. Dave Hunt used to call him Philemon the demon, uh, just to emphasize that. And so we have not just a whole branch of psychology, but uh, you know, a whole movement, uh, and, and all of psychology really in, influenced in some way by Jung's thought. Uh, and, and essentially, it's demonic. And, and that's how anyone in, with a normal mind would read that. Here's another example we don't normally think of. UFO activity is exploding exponentially. You can't swing a cat without hitting a UFO. <laughs> it's crazy, you know, and, and even regular scientists are talking about other dimensional beings and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, every other show is, is something like that. Every other science show. Now, as we've told you over the years in our series of prophecy updates, almost all the unexplained UFO phenomena is demonic activity, or it can be explained that way. So I submit to you, there are more demons around than ever. And just because people's heads aren't spinning all the way around and they're not vomiting pea soup on you, it doesn't mean we're not seeing demonic activity. It is quite literally everywhere you look. Now, why this set of miracles? Competent Bible scholar by the name of Arno Gabeline saw something of a typology. It goes like this. The healing of the leper represents the healing God was offering Israel at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Leprosy is mentioned in the Old Testament as a curse for Israel breaking their covenant with God. So the healing of a leper showed God's intent to heal them spiritually and establish the kingdom. Sadly, Israel rejected Jesus. God then set aside Israel temporarily to call out for himself a people from the Gentiles. It's the church age in which we live and it's represented by the healing of the centurion's servant. Jesus entered a Jewish house and healed its inhabitant. That's representing his second coming when he will again come to the house of Israel and heal them and they will serve him. And then finally, in the millennial kingdom on the earth, Jesus will heal all manner of sickness and infirmities represented by his long night of healing in these verses. Whether Matthew intended that progression or not, it is what has happened and what is going to happen. Now let me suggest a thought for your meditation. The healings in these verses, and most if not all Jesus' healings, were to restore a person's broken fellowship With God, They had physical benefit, obviously. I would rather not be a leper than be a leper. But what he really did was restore this leper's fellowship with God. The leper was an outcast, unable to approach God or men. The centurion was outside the nation of Israel. Peter's mother-in-law was unable to attend the synagogue service. And more than that, women in general were not well thought of in that culture. He restored and healed their relationship with God. When asking God to heal, we always need to keep in mind the greater context, and that is that God wants to have fellowship with people. That's why when confronted by a paralyzed man who was let down through the roof of the house, Jesus' first comments to him were, your sins are forgiven. Then he healed him, because more important than the physical healing, obviously, is the spiritual at the cross, Jesus heals spiritually, and as a result of his victory over sin, he may still heal physically. As we close, I wanna to return to something in the healing of the centurion's servant. We read in verse 10 that Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. I think sometimes we go around as believers thinking that we are always just so disappointing to the Lord, and that may be true. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we blow it. But while that may be true, you can just as easily cause Jesus to marvel and to be astonished, or at least that's a possibility. Step out in faith. Stepping out in faith could mean you must do the thing that the Lord has been prompting you to do by his indwelling spirit, or it could be a matter of simple obedience to his word of being revived to more fully keep his statutes and walk in an empowered obedience. It could be a lot of things. But my point is this, may it be said of you, of us that Jesus marveled. Let's pray together.